I dreamed of the kingdom again last night. This time, I saw horses, fifty or sixty at least, galloping through fields of tall grasses. The grace and freedom of their thundering stride was captivating. Behind them rose mountains majestic, rugged and snow-capped. It looked like the Patagonian steppe. But there was a freshness, a crispness to the scene, like the morning of creation. I thought perhaps they were wild horses. Then I saw riders among them. Suddenly, I too was among them, riding with them. We came to an embankment and stream crossing. Horse and rider mended their gait, when soon as we were over, took off again like the wind. It was a glorious game of some sorts, a romp. When I woke, I thought, surely I am making this up. I had breakfast and drove to work. There, on a city corner, where I have never seen such a sight in twenty years of living here, were riders on horseback. As if Jesus were saying, now do you believe me? Yes, I do. Friends, welcome back to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. John Eldridge here in the second in a series. I am sharing with you chapters from my new book, All Things New, Heaven, Earth, and the Restoration of Everything You Love. Throughout the book, I, I share some actual pictures, visions that Jesus began to give me about the kingdom of God and about his return and about what the new earth looks like and what restoration looks like. And so there's a number of those through the book. And now we're going to jump straight into chapter four. And that that vision about the horses is it just fits right into this chapter and our second installment here in our podcast series. Chapter four, the new earth. He thought his happiness was complete when, as he meandered aimlessly along, suddenly he stood by the edge of a full-fed river. Never in his life had he seen a river before. This sleek, sinuous, full-bodied animal, chasing and chuckling, gripping things with a gurgle and leaving them with a laugh, to fling itself on fresh playmates that shook themselves free. All was a shake and a shiver, Glints and gleams and sparkles, rustle and swirl, chatter and bubble. The mole was bewitched, entranced, fascinated. Kenneth Graham from The Wind and the Willows. I think I remember every tent I ever slept in. My father owned an old World War II Army surplus model. We would take it on fishing trips into the Kern River. The musty smell of oiled canvas still means high adventure to me. 50 years later. I still have the first backpacking tent I bought myself in 1979. It leaks too much to use, but I can't bear to let it go with all those memories it carries for me. Right up through this summer, when I took a solo trip into the mountains to remember backpacking with Craig, I love waking up in a tent. It reaches back to that magical sense of adventure that comes so naturally to a boy when I would wake in my little teepee and realize that a day of endless adventures was waiting right outside my door. There is nothing like stepping out your door into a bright and beckoning world. This is why people vacation in beautiful places. It's also the secret to the stories you love. 
that magical moment when the hero or heroine steps into a new world. You might still remember that lovely catch of breath and skip of heartbeat the first time you followed Lucy through the back of the wardrobe into a snowy wood. Older readers may recall a scene from the first Star Wars film when young Luke Skywalker steps out of his home in the deserts of Tatooine to watch not one, but two suns setting into the horizon. Two suns brilliantly evoked in a moment that sense of otherness and wonder. Personally, I love the moment in The Alchemist when Santiago embarks with the caravan across the Sahara. We're preparing our hearts to receive the hope that alone can be the anchor of our souls. One day soon, you will step into a renewed earth, a young earth, sparkling like an orchard of cherry trees after a rain shower. Joy will be yours. How do we open our hearts to this after so much pain and disappointment? We've lost many things as we've passed through the battlefields of this war-torn world. Our humanity has been stripped of such essential goodness. One of our greatest losses is the gift of wonder the doorway into the kingdom heart. But each of us still has special places and favorite stories that are still able to awaken it. We love being taken into the homeliness of the Hobbit Shire, but our hearts begin to race when Frodo learns he must flee and never return. Wonder grows as we push farther into the unknown realms, the old forest, the inn of the prancing pony, the journey through the wilderness with a ranger they know as Strider, Rivendell enchants, but that tang of dangerous adventure returns again when the fellowship sets forth on the quest upon which all Middle-earth depends. They cross the bridge and wound slowly up the long, steep paths that led out of the cloven vale of Rivendell, and they came at length to the high moor where the wind hissed through the heather. Then with one glance at the last homely house twinkling below them, They strode away, far into the night. Sometimes even a single phrase like, they strode away, far into the night, can awaken in us a sense of longing that almost pierces. There are parts of us, no matter how deeply buried, that still remember we were made for this. The hero in the movie Avatar is offered a fresh start in a new world. I think that helps explain the film's wild success It still holds the global box office record, grossing more than $2 billion. To be honest, it's not the most remarkable story ever told. In fact, it's like every story ever told. The enchantment lies entirely with the fresh start the hero is given and the magical world itself, Pandora, a tropical Eden-like moon. It is a world straight out of fairy tale, with wonders at every turn. Islands that float in the sky, mythical beasts, flowers that glow at night, then fly away when you touch them. Narnia, Middle-earth, Pandora, Tatooine, they are all new worlds and yet not entirely new. There are trees and streams, deserts and animals like enough to our own world to be familiar and yet different enough to be enchanting. Chesterton believed this was the secret to romance the blend of the familiar and new, to be at once astonished at the world and yet at home in it. He felt the reason every age still reads fairy tales 
is actually not to escape our world, but to re-enchant it. These tales say that apples were golden only to refresh the forgotten moment when we found that they were green. They make rivers run with wine only to make us remember for one wild moment that they run with water or run with the water of life. Our hearts long to recover a sense of wonder. It's one of the reasons only the child heart can receive the kingdom. Remember now, we shall be as children again. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. From Mark 10. The adult in us says, how touching, and dismisses it the next moment in order to go on with our very grown-up lives. But Jesus is being utterly serious, and thank God. For it is the child heart still in us who loves Moss Eisley, Middle-earth, Narnia, these fairy tale worlds that in hope beyond hope we long to be lost in ourselves, thus the allure of the video games that let you do so in an artificial way. I believe it is right here that we can discern the longing for the kingdom most clearly, the child in us longing for wonder and a new world, the promise of the earth in its wildest and most radiant moments whispering back, it's coming, it's just around the corner. As Paul says in Romans, this resurrection life you received from God is not a timid, grave-tending life, it's adventurously expectant, greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's Spirit touches our spirit and confirms who we really are. We know who He is, and we know who we are, father and children. And we know we're going to get what's coming to us, an unbelievable inheritance. We go through exactly what Christ goes through. If we go through the hard times with Him, and we're certainly going to go through the good times with him. That's why I don't think there's any comparison between the present hard times and the coming good times. The created world itself can hardly wait for what's coming next. Everything in creation is being more or less held back. God reigns it in until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. From Romans 8, what's next, Papa? Indeed, creation is restored. As a boy, I loved all things new. A new book, a new bike, new cowboy boots, new lunchbox, pocket knife, haircut, friend. Most adults love the newness of something new the smell of a new car, the carpet in a new house, a new song, a new set of your favorite gear, new shoes. Clearly, Imelda's love was the newness of those shoes. She only wore them once, if at all. New year, new you, goes the marketing every January. We all long for a fresh start in a new world. And you shall have it. For as we saw in chapter 2, God does not destroy the earth nor his beloved creation. He makes everything brand spanking new. Oh, the wonder of it! I was walking in a grove of aspens yesterday evening. They're such beautiful, elegant trees, 
Long white trunks, white as snow, grow upward 50 feet or more before the leaves crown the tops. I love the smoothness of the trunks, bending slightly here and there as they reach upward. There's something about their form that reminds me of the beauty of a woman's body. At this time of year, the leaves are golden, and the late sunlight coming through a forest of aspens turns golden as it passes through the canopy. A soft breeze was blowing, and the yellow leaves were fluttering gently down all around me, falling softly like flower petals. It felt like some heavenly benediction. Tall evergreens, spruces, were scattered in the grove of aspens, and the golden leaves caught on their green boughs and made them look like they were decked out for some holiday, like there was a grand party in the forest the night before. Here, among hundreds of living pillars of white, crowned with golden, I understand why the Celts believed in sacred groves. Just to place my hand on the smoothness of their trunk and feel its coolness and the life within, that is a healing act. The forest of white columns could have been a sanctuary from heaven, or Lothlorien, the elven kingdom of Middle-earth. When his eyes were in turn uncovered, Frodo looked up and caught his breath. They were standing in an open space. To the left stood a great mound, covered with a sward of grass as green as springtime in the elder days. Upon it, as a double crown, grew two circles of trees. The outer had bark of snowy white and were leafless but beautiful in their shapely nakedness. The inner were malorn trees of great height, still arrayed in pale gold. The others cast themselves down upon the fragrant grass but Frodo stood a while still lost in wonder. It seemed to him that he had stepped through a high window that looked on a vanished world. A light was upon it for which his language had no name. All that he saw was shapely, but the shapes seemed at once clear-cut, as if they had been first conceived and drawn at the uncovering of his eyes, and ancient as if they had endured forever. He turned and saw that Sam was now standing beside him, looking round with a puzzled expression and rubbing his eyes as if he was not sure that he was awake. It's sunlight and bright day right enough, he said. I thought that elves were all for moon and stars, but this is more elvish than anything I ever heard tell of. I feel as if I was inside a song, if you take my meaning. Yes, all this shall be ours, a breathtaking world waiting right outside our door when all the earth is restored to its full glory. The return of Jesus may come with the trumpet blast, but what musical score will accompany the restoration of all things? Will it begin quietly, a single oboe, piercing and beautiful and poetic? Will it swell and crescendo into a mighty orchestra? Perhaps you've walked by a pond or mountain lake and seen in it the reflection of the trees, meadow and mountains, dappled, shifting, like an impressionist painting. Then you look up and see the real thing, the substance of it, the clear, shining reality of it all. It's not something other, and yet it is more real, more true to itself. What do the fjords of Norway look like when they are completely unveiled? What of the Andes or the waters of the South Pacific? English painter Lilius Trotter burst into tears when she first saw the Alps, overcome by their beauty 
Will we weep or shout or stand speechless when we see them reborn? Oh, yes, we will recover wonder. Stacy and I honeymooned in Yosemite National Park. We'd never been in that majestic valley before and arrived late into the night after a long drive, collapsing into bed with no idea whatsoever the cathedrals that rose all around us. The valley John Muir described as extremely rugged, with its main features on the grandest scale in height and depth, benevolent, solemn, fateful, pervaded with divine light. Every landscape glows like a countenance hallowed in eternal repose, pulsing with the heartbeats of God. I woke in the morning a little groggy and stepped out the back door to have a stretch. Thundering down, thousands of feet before me roared Yosemite Falls. All I could do was yell, Stacy, Stacy, get out here. What are waterfalls like in the new earth? What of the giant sequoias or the tender wildflowers? What is rain like? And think of your special places. Imagine what it will be like to see them again in their glory. How sweet it will be to revisit treasured nooks and vistas, gardens and swimming holes again, see them as they truly are, unveiled everything God meant them to be. Part of what makes the wonder so precious is that while it is a new world, it is our world, the world most dear to our hearts, romance at its best. Including the animal kingdom. I was in my office this morning, knees bent, body doubled over, so that my forehead almost touched the ground. I like that position as I pray. I find it very centering, comforting. It's almost fetal, primal. Suddenly, a little furry muzzle and wet nose were pushing their way through my arm. Our young Golden had decided it was time to play. The intrusion was so startling and winsome, familiar and disruptive. I thought to myself, what will it be like when a wolf pup does this or a polar bear cub? For we will once again be lords of the earth and all creation coming to hand joyfully, eagerly, without fear. The child heart wants to know, will there be animals in heaven? And the calloused, grown-up heart dismisses the question as theologically unworthy. May I point out, that the whole debate ends when you realize that heaven comes to earth? Our home is right here on a renewed planet. How could our creative God renew his precious earth and not fill it with a renewed animal kingdom? That would be like a school without children, a village without people. The sheer barrenness and bleakness of the thought is utterly abhorrent to the child heart of God and his love for the animals, his precious creations. We know there are horses, for Jesus and his company return on horseback. Then I saw heaven open wide, John said, and oh, a white horse and its rider, the rider named Faithful and True judges and makes war in pure righteousness. The armies of heaven, mounted on white horses and dressed in dazzling white linen, follow him from Revelation 19. I wonder what Jesus named his horse. Does he come to his whistle? Does he need a saddle? I bet he rides bareback like the American Indians did.
I've seen those horses, the cavalry of heaven, several times now. It happened as we brought the gospel on mission into foreign territory. We would be in a time of worship, and suddenly I would see the front line of mounted horsemen spread out before me like the Rohirrim before Gondor and the Lord of the Rings. Penance waving, row upon row of horse and rider behind, lifted spears like a forest. Oh, yes, there are horses in the kingdom. The wolf will romp with the lamb. The leopard sleep with the kid. Calf and lion will eat from the same trough, and a little child will tend them. Cow and bear will graze the same pasture. Their calves and cubs grow up together, and the lion eats straw like the ox. The nursing child will crawl over the rattlesnake dens. The toddler stick his hand down the hole of a serpent. Neither animal nor human will hurt or kill on my holy mountain. The whole earth will be brimming with knowing God alive, a living knowledge of God, ocean deep, ocean wide. From Isaiah 11 in the message. Now, Unless you want to dismiss this as completely allegorical, we have wolves, lambs, leopards, goats, cows, lions, and bears in the kingdom as well. The passage is clearly describing the kingdom of God operating in its fullness on earth, the renewal of all things. And animals are clearly a part of it, praise our loving Father. But this time around, I can barely say this without trembling. The animal kingdom will be our joyful partners. They'll not be afraid of us anymore. They'll long to love and serve us. For we were once lords of the animal kingdom, and in the recreated earth we shall take up that beautiful mantle again. What animals would you love to come to your call, to have a deep and holy friendship with? Even in this ailing world, we see glimpses of what Adam and Eve must have enjoyed in the lives of those men and women who seem to have a special relationship with animals? Horse whisperers who with gentle wisdom are able to take a frightened and completely wild colt and within hours win its trust enough to ride it. The Mongolian shepherds who have trained golden eagles to hunt with them. The Indian men who work the timber forests with the help of elephants, riding them bareback and using only their knees to communicate. Lawrence Anthony had a special relationship with African elephants. He authored a book called The Elephant Whisperer, My Life with the Herd in the African Wild. In 1999, he was asked to take charge of a dangerous group of elephants brought to his preserve, and over time, they formed a sacred bond. Elephants have long been known to mourn the death of a member of their herd, but on the night of Anthony's death, something very special took place. After traveling for more than 12 hours, two herds of elephants arrived shortly after his death, where they appeared to stand vigil for two days. This is how the animals must have behaved back in Eden, honoring our first parents, intuitively knowing their needs and we theirs. Imagine the animals coming to our call, coming to honor us as their renewed masters. What will it be like to be partners again with nature? And what does a restored rabbit look like? Is he bigger? Faster? Does he bound greater leaps? What about a restored bear? 
The bears of this world grow larger the farther north you go. What is the size of a bear in its Eden glory? Are restored bears more beautiful? Of course they are. And certainly gentle, for neither animal nor human will hurt or kill on my holy mountain. Imagine, we will be like Noah as the animals run to us to be reacquainted. Will your childhood dog run to greet you? God makes all things new. Will he be taller, stronger, though every bit his true self? Will his bright eyes have so much to say? Think about the intelligence of restored creation. We're only now beginning to learn the true comprehension of animals. Your dog might not be cooperating, but canines understand more than 165 words. Brain scans reveal that their minds process what we say and how we say it, just like human brains do. We know dolphins are extremely bright and playful. They employ a diverse language researchers call extensive and complex. Fully restored humans will have all the intuitive faculties and animal sense to communicate with a bright, intelligent, and restored animal kingdom. And the Holy Spirit will fill every relationship, enabling us to grow in perfect understanding of them and they of us. How could we be their shepherd lords again if we do not speak to one another? My heart just skipped a beat. We're getting close to Narnia. Or perhaps Narnia was simply peeking into the renewal. I think it will be far more wondrous to, quote, speak to animals each in their own language rather than have them all speak ours. Playing in creation. I'll devote a coming chapter to what our work will be in the kingdom, for we are said to reign on the earth, Revelation chapter 5. Meanwhile, keeping in mind that it's our child heart that receives the kingdom, let's dream about what it will be like to play in a remade world. I'm enchanted by the legends of ancient Polynesian cultures like the Maori and their tales of the whale riders, mighty lords of old who had a bond so deep with nature they were able to ride on the backs of whales like we ride a horse or camel. Perhaps those legends are only mythic, but they speak of a wild and holy desire, and there is the longing for the kingdom again. Or perhaps those legends were actually prophecy. We do see a small glimpse of this in the trainers who ride whales in theme parks. Now, I'm all for freeing Willie, but if that can happen in a fallen world, what lies before us in a world made young and innocent? Creation wants to play. My dogs allow me about an hour and a half at the keyboard before they interrupt and insist on a romp. Perhaps you've had the joy of being on a boat in warm waters and seeing the happiness of the dolphins who come to surf the bow wake, making a deliberate choice to drop whatever it was they were doing and come to the sound, come to play on the fringes of our humanity. Nick Jans tells the story of a rare encounter with a black wolf in Juneau, Alaska, who came out of the woods one day on the outskirts of town and played with the dogs locals had brought to run there. Wildlife biologists consider one sighting in a lifetime a success. But this wolf hung around for years, showing a keen desire to interact and even play with humans, as if he were a messenger from Eden. I saw horses and riders in the kingdom, 
what else might we ride? People currently ride elephants, water buffalo, ostriches, camels, orcas, giant tortoises. Why shouldn't we play with all creation when we are reconciled, when happiness permeates every living thing and God himself is here among us? Of course we'll swim with the whales, and in loving kindness, of course they'll offer to take us on their backs. Yes, Revelation implies, quote, there was no longer any sea, end quote, from Revelation 21.1. But many scholars believe this is alluding to the fact that the ancients, including the Jews, held the sea to be a habitation of evil. Of course evil is gone, but the earth cannot function without the oceans. They play a critical role in our water cycle, weather, and planet temperature. Besides, who can imagine a new earth without the glorious ocean? Perhaps more importantly, the Greek of Revelation 21.1 speaks of one world, quote, passing away so that a remade world may take its place. Therefore, Eugene Peterson in the message translates the passage this way. I saw heaven and earth new created. Gone the first heaven, gone the first earth, gone the sea. Gone only in the sense of the old passing so that the renewed can take its place. The eagles carried Sam and Frodo to safety. Gandalf rode them several times. What if? A large golden eagle in our world can lift a sheep and carry it away. What load can a renewed eagle bear? I would love to ride a golden eagle, with their permission, of course. And friends, I've not even mentioned the angels. Heaven comes to earth, and the angels shall walk in fellowship with man. What do the angels have to teach us? What sort of games do they play? The entire earth will be our playground. I see massive games like lacrosse being played by angels and men across vast landscapes. This is why you don't need a bucket list. It's all yours, and you can never lose it. Oh, how I long to wander the beautiful places without a curfew, without the end of vacation always looming. You've longed to see the fjords of Norway? Done. You've secretly hoped to wander the jungles of Africa? Yours. What next? The Amazon? Antarctica? And I'm only touching on the Earth. What of the microscopic world? It is as vast as the world we call our own and we shall explore its mysteries. What of the heavens? They too shall be ours. As Scottish poet George MacDonald wrote, I do live expecting great things in the life that is ripening for me and all mine, when we shall have all the universe for our own, and be good, merry, helpful children in the great house of our Father. Then, darling, you and I will have all the grand liberty wherewith Christ makes free, opening his hand to send us out like white doves to range the universe. Good thing we have all the time in a world that has no time to explore and come home and tell the tales, to take up new adventures with those who want to sail the seven seas or climb the peaks of the Andes or range the universe itself. Remember, Jesus is the forerunner, the, quote, second Adam. All that he was, we shall be. 
we shall have restored bodies like the body of Christ after his resurrection, able to walk on water and defy certain limits known to us now. St. Peter, for a few seconds, walked on the water, wrote C.S. Lewis, and the day will come when there will be a remade universe, infinitely obedient to the will of glorified and obedient men, when we can do all things, when we shall be those gods that we are described as being in Scripture. I love the picture he gave us of this very possibility toward the end of the Narnian tale, The Last Battle. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up, come further in. He shook his mane and sprang forward into a great gallop, a unicorn's gallop, which in our world would have carried him out of sight in a few moments. But now a most strange thing happened. Everyone else began to run, and they found to their astonishment that they could keep up with him. The air flew in their faces as if they were driving fast in a car without a windscreen. The country flew past as if they were seeing it from the windows of an express train. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. If one could run without getting tired, I don't think one would often want to do anything else. So they ran faster and faster till it was more like flying than running and even the eagle overhead was going no faster than they. And they went through winding valley after winding valley and up the steep sides of hills and faster than ever down the other sides, following the river and sometimes crossing it and skimming across mountain lakes as if they were living speedboats. You think I'm being fanciful. I am being utterly serious. I am being as serious as Jesus when he warned that only the child heart can receive the kingdom. Do you really want to suggest sinful man can create stories and worlds that outshine the world's God will remake? Careful there. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2. It was our creative father who gave us our imaginations. The visions we tell in story are often prophetic glimpses into his wondrous realms, and his creative majesty will certainly do ours one better in the world to come. Welcoming the Promise I am treasuring now every taste of the promise that comes my way. I'm seeking them out with new eyes, letting them broaden my kingdom imagination, fill these empty files with brilliant expectations. Years ago, while visiting friends in Kauai, we discovered one of those moments that overflows with the wonder and allure of the coming kingdom. We had borrowed sea kayaks and come nightfall, would paddle out in the dark, under the Pacific stars, out past the breakers, into the rolling swells. The surf hits the reef a few hundred yards out from shore, and there was only one gap through which you could pass somewhat safely out into open water. And there, we would sit, letting our pounding hearts calm 
riding up and down on the rollers coming in and just letting it all take our breath away. The jet black ocean beneath us with who knows what swimming by. The night sky above, just as black and even more deep, allowing the stars to do their best. And often the warm kawaii rain would gently fall on us for a few minutes. In a small kayak, you feel everything. The currents, the swells, your own fragility. Out there in the dark, it was like floating on the mystery of God. Holy, mesmerizing, and more than a little unnerving. But the beauty and adventure were irresistible, and it became something we did every time we visited. The currents move you up and down the coast, so as we began to paddle back in, we searched in the dark for the one gap that would allow us to shoot through the crashing waves, over the reef, and into the lagoon. The luminescent foam allowed a glimpse of the place where the breakers weren't thundering onto the coral, and there we would catch the thrilling ride back in. Once past the reef, just inches below, the lagoon opens up, quiet and calm. We felt safer from the sharks in there. There are a few dozen cottages scattered along that stretch of beach, and then dark cliffs behind. No hotels, no condo honeycombs, just the simple warmth of a few softly glowing porch lights calling you home. Paddling in felt like a moment from the kingdom. These precious moments, so filled with the promise, are hauntings from the Spirit of God given to us to lift our hearts into the wonder of the restoration of all things. And very soon, we will visit those waters again and swim without fear at night, playing with the dolphins and whales, and then riding the waves themselves into the beach, where we'll sit around the campfires of the kingdom and tell stories late into the night. The things we are discussing are utterly real, friends utterly real, and the most concrete part of your future. Until both creation and all the creatures are ready and can be released at the same moment into the glorious times ahead. Meanwhile, the joyful anticipation deepens. Romans 8. There is a deep and holy connection between creation's release and ours. It waits upon us. Let's explore that next. I hope that this is beginning to build hope in you. Next week, I want to read to you the chapter on our restoration. But I just wanted to let you know that this is the big week here, the launch week of, of the book, All Things New. And you can order it at ransomedheart.com or wherever you get your books. And I bet there's some of you that are already thinking about doing a small group with this. And we have a small group curriculum as well with its own videos that go with it. And if you haven't been following us on Facebook, we've been releasing some really beautiful films that kind of capture the restoration. And so you can find those for free at allthingsnew.com. See you next week.